What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Fucking Podcast. Show with undiplomatic <laughs> takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. This is take two because I halfway fucking recorded an episode just now and deleted it. And we're starting over again. Sorry. Joining me today is Hunter Marsden. Hey, hey. Gabby Magnuson. What's going on? Alex Audie. G'day. And Jake Dello. What's up? So just one quick shout out before uh, we start the show. I had this whole thing about drone swarms and countermeasures that was like a fascinating talk that has been lost to technology at this point because I failed to record it properly. And instead, I'm just going to say shout out to the Progressive Talent Pipeline, which launched in 2018 and it's totally brand new on my radar. It just... They, there's a progressivetalentpipeline.org. If you're American, I'm pretty sure they don't deal outside of the U.S. But uh, there's this huge problem in the Washington sort of like intellectual national security culture where the Heritage Foundation and AEI and National Review and like there are all these platforms that exist to support conservatives and to support conservative careers in public policy. And this has existed since like the 1970s. The result is that public service, particularly on Capitol Hill and the think tank scene, etc., they've created an ecosystem where you can have a whole career being a devout conservative, devoted conservative, and you can pop from job to job and promotion to promotion and you're cultivated so that when a conservative president wins you can be part of the talent bench that they pull from for political appointments the left has never really had anything like this like the closest we get is center for american progress which is like you know, mixed track record, very controversial, minuscule in comparison to these conservative institutions. So this progressive talent pipeline thing, long story how I discovered it, but like it's basically brand new and it exists to be the sort of left counterpoint to all this conservative ecosystem shit so that you can be somebody with like a progressive worldview, but who's interested in public service and find ways to make a career for yourself. And they exist to help support or facilitate that. So fairly new. It's not clear to me what their track record is. They do have some placements. They have been succeed some successful cases, but this is very promising. This is how we sort of start to fix shit short of revolution. So shout out to progressive talent pipeline. I tell you what, we, you guys, listeners missed a great discussion about drones and the offense defense balance but i just cannot oh, bring you. myself to replicate fifth, it was a 15 minute long quick hit but maybe we'll hit it next week oh, God. yeah yeah i might bring it back we'll see let's do prediction market where we get vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them all right for prediction market this week question 1.1 Following recent talks in Iraq between Saudi Arabia and Iran, will there be a de-escalation or cessation of conflict in Yemen before December? So I think so, yes. Uh, partially because December is a while away and partially because, you know, Saudi Arabia cannot, there's no winning in Yemen for Saudi Arabia. But also right now there's two other things going on in the background, which is Iraq being the broker of sort of ceasefire diplomacy between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is uh, not trivial. But then also we're in the process of Washington trying to bring Iran back into a nuclear deal, JCPOA 2.0, something like that. 
And so there's a lot of like possible geopolitical configurations, permutations that can happen between now and December that would give uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran the opportunity to kind of like step back from the brink. Right. So I would say, yeah. Question two, will Bashar al-Assad retain power in the upcoming Syrian election? Ha 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 ha. I had genuine laughs the first time I saw this, yeah. but now like <laughs> too much time has passed. It it. Uh, <laughs> so obviously, no, it is laughable. Or, I mean, obviously, yes. Right. So it's laughable to me and fascinating that Bashar al-Assad feels the need to hold democratic elections when he's gassing his own people, waging a war against his own people. Somehow he still feels like he needs the trappings of an election to like validate himself. Big dictator, small ego. Or no, wait, small dictator, big <laughs> ego. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And instead of a question three, mm. for all our uh, regulousness, you would have noticed last week, Van had a question about whether Russia was going to have sanctions imposed on them. Van said no. And within one day, the most reputable journalistic organization in history, the New York Times, actually published an article uh, titled Biden, The Biden Administration to Impose Tough New Sanctions on Russia. How does that feel, man? Wrong in record time. Okay, so in my defense, the original question about uh, new sanctions on Russia, I was reading it as being in relation to Russia's use of private military contractors in Africa. Uh, the new sanctions are all about Russian cyber activity. It makes sense. I probably wouldn't have predicted it anyway, but yeah. I don't see sanctions on Russia for what it does in Africa, although maybe it, there should be. You know, prediction market's got to take its wins where it can get them. So, <laughs> When did a win in prediction market become take. a loss for me? What's the, <laughs> that's, okay. Oh, well, there's prediction market this week. Salvageable as ever. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Awesome. So jumping into my two of the week, my first tweet is from Dr. Rita Konov, a research fellow at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. So her tweet is short, sweet, and makes a valid point. If you weren't an Afghanistan expert last week, this week is not the time to start. And this is, if you haven't already heard, following the news that the United States is pulling out of Afghanistan by September 11. And as you can imagine, has sparked a lot of talk in the past week, especially from people who don't know what they're on about. Yes. And it's more like the reason why I like this has less to do with Afghanistan per se, which is a very the bandwagony topic of the day. But it's because like this shit happens on every subject that comes up that's like newsworthy. <laughs> yeah. I think I've talked about it on the pod before, but like in the North Korean nuclear crisis in 2017, we had people like fucking Richard Haas and Admiral Stavridis <laughs> weighing in with fucking advice for how to negotiate with Kim Jong-un and the odds of war and all this bullshit. It's like, what the fuck do you know about this, dude? And like, <laughs> it's super... There's something about the pundit class, like the democratization of the pundit class. This sounds elitist, I guess, but it's lowered. It's happened as a consequence of lowering the standards of punditry so that everybody gets an opinion. And the result is that if you actually are an expert, you have to contend with a bunch of idiots whose voices may or may not be louder than yours or whose, whose take might be hotter than yours and therefore get more attention. And that's often the problem is like, if you've got the hottest take, 
you're going to get the most interactions. It's kind of a skew of whether you're right or like that you have the soundest judgment or whatever. Like that, those things are much less important than, you know, no offense, Hunter, whether you've got a blue check by your name. Hey. <laughs> That's why I said I'm no offense, of- Hunter. <laughs> It's hard to come by that thing. Yeah. Who knew that you would have gotten such a gift? We make fun of it, but we all still want one, really. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny. None of this shit gives anybody any money. And yet we all spend so much time on it and we chase it. Like, there's a metaphor here about disaster capitalism. I don't know. I still think of your uh, your metaphor about the uh, chasing the next crack hit. Crack high. Yes. Right. So. With op eds and such. Yeah. That's so true. Sunday night, man. Doom scrolling and crack. Sweet. So, my second tweet is from John Lee, commenter on politics and social issues relating to the Korean Peninsula and the US, as well as the host of The Korean Foreigner. So, I thought one of the tweet threads he blasted this week was pretty hardcore. So, in response to a Twitter poll asking if the US was right to intervene in the Korean War, John responds with this. Here's the cold, hard truth. The decision to intervene in another country's war is right when you win and wrong when you lose. Any other argument is an exercise in self-aggrandizement and vanity. He continues pointing out, as a South Korean, I will always be grateful that the U.S. came to my country's aid. And the U.S. can always point to South Korea as one of its best, if not the best, foreign policy outcomes. South Korea is a thriving democracy and one of the richest countries in the world. But what about South Vietnam? Well, we can't ask a South Vietnamese person that question because there is no such country. And while the Korean War is the forgotten war, it didn't lead to the Korean syndrome unlike Vietnam. Korea was a stalemate for the US, Vietnam was a total loss. Americans look at the Vietnam War as a mistake, as something they should have never gotten into. But if the US had won or at least preserved a stalemate as they did in Korea, would Americans still be as remorseful? Yeah, so I don't know if I don't know if I agree with his argument, but it definitely forces you to sit with something, something that's like very uncomfortable, which is that history is written by the winners and our distortion, like our perception of what works and what doesn't often is colored by wins and losses, you know, interventionism itself, which, you know, of course, like we have an intrinsic bias against this on the left, but like it's track record is mixed, right? It's if the idea that like, the Korean Peninsula would be better off if Kim Il-sung had fucking taken over the whole place. Clearly not true. Like if, if, if we can ever have a counterfactual that we really understand and can say confidently, it's that the Korean Peninsula would not be better off if North Korea had fucking won the Korean War. Obviously, South Korea is this, in relative terms, beacon of democracy, clearly a success case. But there's like a lot of downside to that. And even in the U.S. intervention in the Korean War, basically a W or like it's it's something that uh, we should have some sense of pride in. You know, we weren't necessarily doing it for the right reasons. And it was a high, high cost. Like a lot of people had to die a gruesome death in order for this to happen. Like Korean democracy exists on the back of a lot of people getting slaughtered. And so you really have to weigh that against the counterfactual and that is harder to argue i would still say that that's better than if north korea had taken over completely because who knows what that totalitarian nightmare would look like so like i don't agree with this on the face of it what he's saying but yes the history is written by the winners and when you lose it's going to always look bad you know so i've got two this week first one's from kelsey atherton 
I think friend of the pod. He writes about tech and robots and all kinds of shit. Um, he is now. Generally from a progressive perspective, yeah. And uh, he just tweets out this article on uh, the drive, thedrive.com, about how enemy drones have been um, surveilling the U.S. and U- the U.S. military as it conducts operations. And he, he says, this, I think, is the first comprehensive theory outlined for why do military sensors keep picking up weird objects that grounds it in a plausible human agent. Right. Which is to say that, like, when the Navy keeps finding all of these, like, unidentified flying objects. So we think of it as aliens or something. Every time that news gets reported, there's actually a hypothesis here that this unidentified object is enemy unmanned systems that we don't want to publicly identify as such because it's embarrassing to us. And so I find this interesting. He's sort of flagging it and explaining it this way. I still would like to believe in UFOs and I don't know what that says about me, but um, it's useful to have competing hypotheses. And this is an answer for UFOs, you know, I want to believe. Yeah. This sort of burst my bubble as well. Um, you know, I, I it is a letdown, the, uh, yeah. One of the only exciting uh, positive developments I saw in the Trump administration was this decision to release uh, the UFO footage right from the Air Force and Pentagon. Um, I thought it was super exciting to follow this story over the last few years was a lot more open to the idea that perhaps these are unexplainable uh, flying objects. And, you know, you watch the footage, it's incredible stuff. But the fact that someone's come along and written this like 3000 word article, uh, really laying out a detailed case for how they're not UFOs and they're actually drones from foreign adversaries. Um, it's compelling, but you gotta go back and watch the footage. Yeah. We have Still to believe it's possible. There, the world has to be more magical than this. Because this is too like dismal. We have, there has to be something beyond Oh, it's just spy versus spy. Fucking, you know, our un- unmanned systems tracking unmanned systems, tracking manned pilots. I come on. What what about alien civilizations? What about the third body problem? Like that's interesting. And that titillates me, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> if there's one good thing to come from this article, you know, in the conclusion he's saying uh I actually looked at the article, which is quite long, but uh the author is saying the best course of action would be to spend more resources and thought analyzing what these foreign objects are um, and then uh, to expose the findings in a very transparent way, which we have not done so far, quite the opposite. Um, So I think that that's all sound advice and and makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the thing that this explanation has going for it, aside from being totally fucking humdrum and killing my buzz, is that the UFO phenomenon did coincide Kelsey points this out in his tweet thread. It did coincide with the start of the Cold War spy versus spy stuff. It was only at the point where we started doing secret aerial missions that we started seeing fucking UFO shit, you know? And so um, I'm not willing to give up on the the prospect of UFOs, but uh, I understand that that's like not the most likely explanation like ufos or aliens like that's probably not the case i can't believe i can't decide which 
which is better coming out of Van's mouth. The fact that he's like an absolute <laughs> microwave tin hat guy, or he just used titillate in a sentence referring to aliens. <laughs> I want to I, I want to be a tin hat. The thing about the tin hat people is that they have they live in a very romantic world in their heads, you know? I want the romance without oh. the tin hat. Oh. Like oh. <laughs> Tin hat people used to be cool. They used to be the aliens and the X Files stuff, but now they're QAnon. I know, I know. <laughs> and that's the scary bit. That's why I don't say I do believe. I say I want to believe. Fox Mulder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, shit. That doesn't look good either. He would have been QAnon, I think, um, in 2020. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. He's like subverting the FBI from within, you know? Like, Deep state, all yes, that. Yes. You're about to piss off all these X-Fell fans. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, second tweet. Friend of the pod slash friend friend, Andrew Carr. He teaches at uh, Australian National University. And he's tweeting over this quote that came from a former Australian defense minister who was talking about how, like, there's a realistic chance that Australia will have to confront China in the next five to 10 years in, in you know, a shooting conflict kind of way. He says, the defense minister, old defense minister says, quote, avoiding any kind of war is our paramount defense and foreign policy priority as a nation. And then Andrew uh, responds over that and says, one, should this be our aim, right? Avoiding any kind of war as the, as the priority. Two, if this is our aim, uh, we are going about it in a strange way because we do modest diplomatic activity. We're very confrontational with North Korea, China, and Russia, etc. And so this is very interesting food for thought in a way that's very different from the UFO stuff. I said on Twitter at the time when I saw this that like every nation needs its own theory for how it avoids war, but it's debatable whether that should be the top priority of a nation, right? Do you avoid war at any price? No matter, or is like, is, are you avoiding war under all conditions? That would make you a pacifist, right? And that's not realistic. So you have to make exemptions. Every rational person would make exemptions for fighting wars in the name of self-defense. But when it comes to like nations versus nations, what's the threshold between self-defense and forward defense, right? Or prevention versus self-defense. You do need to, most governments fail absolutely on this question of like, how should we be orienting our statecraft to avoid war? And then there's another question of like, what's the threshold or what, what alternative theories do we need beyond just war prevention? Like, is there something else that's worth fighting for in our view? of the national interest. Uh, so this raises a lot of interesting questions and it's on Twitter. It spurred like a huge debate. So uh, I thought it was worth flagging at least. Let's jump into armchair analysis where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. For this week's armchair analysis, I've selected a piece uh, in the Atlantic by Peter Nicholas called Biden's foreign policy starts at home. In typical blob fashion, the article starts with uh, Jake Sullivan and Ben Rhodes dissecting Trump's 2016 election on a trip in Myanmar, which uh, I didn't actually know about in 2017, apparently. So Hillary Clinton had lost voters in the Midwest, and Sullivan and Rhodes came to the realization that Democrats' foreign and domestic policies had diverged from working class heartland Americans. 
the article says Biden's aim is to orient foreign policy so that it serves those who have lived through a succession of trade deals and overseas wars and wonder what exactly was in it for them. The idea of this uh, making foreign policy work for the middle class comes from a Carnegie Endowment for International Peace report, which Jake Sullivan worked on. And the Biden administration has taken this and tried to get beyond the past uh the recent tribalism and partisanship and to focus on domestic renewal, a message that unites Americans by doing things like passing the uh, $2 trillion or $1.9 trillion COVID relief package and moving on to a massive infrastructure bill to create jobs and so on. Skeptics aren't convinced by the rhetoric of a foreign policy for the middle class, but the administration is sending a message from the top down that the priority must be on working in middle class America. If the old saying personnel is policy is true, Biden's choice of Susan Rice as director of the Domestic Policy Council echoes that message. Another editor of the report, Salman Ahmed, is director of policy planning now. And Bill Burns, who wrote a summary of the report, is CIA director. Jake Sullivan has also requested various agencies to send him a memo by the first week of May, identifying how their agency's work will help the American middle class. The other aspect of the article is to emphasize that all of this plays into competition with China, right? The United States needs to get its house in order at home to show that democracy still works and offer a competitive model to Chinese authoritarianism. In the process, it might also win back white working class voters that voted for Trump and possibly some of the voters that switched from Obama to Trump. I think this is fucking highly aspirational and this is a puff piece on behalf of the Biden administration. This is bullshit. Like foreign policy for the middle class, foreign policy starts at home. Absolutely the right thing to do. Absolutely not happening right now and not foreseeably either. There are onesie twosie initiatives that put foreign policy to work for the middle class or that net benefit the middle class. But the fact that Jake is asking departments to write reports that say how what they're doing can be rationalized through the middle class prism that's showing you that this is language games they're trying to find how do we adapt our rhetoric in a way that marries this frame of middle class serving with our fucking existing elite unaccountable foreign policy i think this is total bullshit susan rice is very smart wholly unqualified to be doing in charge of this domestic policy portfolio. There's nothing that serves, like nothing against Susan Rice. N her working on a domestic policy initiative is not evidence of anything that foreign policy is serving the middle class. What I see in all of this is an earnest desire. Like I get that Jake Sullivan wants to do this, but they're not doing it. The confrontation in Anchorage between fucking Tony Blinken and Jake and the Chinese, that did not serve the middle class, right? The global minimum corporate tax proposal serves the middle class, right? There are things that serve the middle class, and a lot of the domestic policy stuff that Biden is doing serves the middle class. But how does it serve the middle class to play fucking hardball with Iran over JCPOA? It doesn't. Or to stiff arm North Korea to refuse to get off of this fucking nonsense about denuclearization. That does not serve the middle class, man. I think that this is a lot of rhetoric and it's aspirational and it's the right aspiration, but they're not living up to it. And I feel like this article 
is just carrying water for the Biden administration. And I don't think that this administration or any other is served by us cheerleading them. I think that one of the reasons why Biden's foreign policy has been very different and far more conservative than his domestic policy is because domestic policy decisions are much more accountable to people and to experts, whereas foreign policy is its in its own ecosystem with the same handfuls of people making decision and they're in their own knowledge bubbles. And so there is no accountability. It's very insulated from normal people. And it's the fact that foreign policy is so distant from the average American that adds to the unaccountability and makes this notion of like foreign policy for the middle class even more farcical. So to the extent you can do this, great. I applaud the effort. But the fact that we're like this piece basically celebrates this as if it's happening way, way overstatement of reality, I think, which is not in service of anybody except the presidency. But I don't see the harm in cheering for some of these domestic measures. Um, you know, infrastructure has been something we've needed for decades, right? And and investing in that and creating jobs, hopefully getting uh, some healthcare reform to uh, make progress on the Obama administration's previous efforts there will make us a stronger country to compete with uh, China and other stop, stop, countries. stop. No. You had it. You had me head nodding with you until you said to compete with China. You have to do these things in the name of democracy, not in the oh, name 100%. of fighting totalitarianism abroad. That's 100%. the fucking. But, that's the farce. But my point is, when authoritarians abroad are able to say, "Look, American democracy is not working," this argument has taken hold of at course. home in America. Right there are people across the Midwest, the Trump supporters, the QAnoners who uh, see all these problems with America and instead of backing some of these big infrastructure and job spending bills are favoring more of an authoritarian push at home and, you know, will continue to vote for the likes of Trump. Yes. I mean, so like we're on the same page in terms of cheerleading the domestic policy initiatives that are clearly progressive, clearly more democratic and clearly aim at kind of shrinking inequality and expanding opportunity. I think that's desperately needed. But we've gone down this path before of in the early Cold War period of yoking these progressive policies to vilification of others, to we need to do these because it's how we fight the bad guy. And it doesn't end well because at a certain point, that's when the neoliberals came in and were able to gut the progressive stuff and say, oh, actually, we have a different theory for how we fight the bad guys. And it doesn't involve raising the minimum wage. It involves killing motherfuckers or spending more on the military. And what can you say? You've already ceded that ground by saying this is about national security. So that's not that's my concern here. And that's the that is the mm -hmm. wrong frame. Mm -hmm. And when you're cheerleading about it, the, the about the foreign stuff, not just the domestic stuff, it's like you're going to live the Cold War all over again, like you didn't learn anything. So I'm a little worried about that. All right. Time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything okay so we've got three questions for ask me anything this week the first one is from christopher clary he is a assistant professor of political science at university of albany and a non-resident fellow at the stimson center and he asks on twitter what is the goal of all the u.s signaling on taiwan are people legitimately worried about a prc attack trying to raise costs on PRC for a variety of past sins? So this is a really, really good question. 
he didn't ask his question directly to the pod, but um, I know he listens to the podcast sometimes. It's worth sort of discussing. I, I had a response on Twitter to this already. And I think there's actually like, if you treat this as a foreign policy analysis question, right? Like what are the competing hypotheses that account for why the Biden administration is making so much noise about being close to Taiwan, doing so in a way that is antagonistic of Beijing. You could do initiatives that are sort of pro-Taiwan or that strengthen the relationship with Taiwan that are like minimally antagonistic. And so some of the stuff like getting Japan, trying to persuade Japan to make statements, basically collective security statements about defense of Taiwan, that's a lot, you know, and it doesn't, it's not clear that that serves anything. And the Japanese I've heard are very uncomfortable with this, but they're being asked by Kurt Campbell and by the Biden administration to make these statements. So like they kind of are, they're going along with it, but like very reluctantly. And you have to ask like what you get from this. And so one hypothesis that I've had for this is performative rivalry, which is to say that like, U.S. policy officials, and I used to, I spent a bunch of time doing this in the Pentagon. We make a lot of rhetoric and decisions about our policies that don't actually affect reality directly, but we do it because we get a kind of ontological security out of it. By denouncing this dictator, we, without actually like imposing sanctions or doing anything to change reality on the ground, but by denouncing them, we make ourselves feel good and reaffirm our position as leader of the free world or whatever. Right. Um, so we gain a sense of like affirming our own identity and our own role in the world by these rivalrous actions. Right. What purpose did the open public media confrontation with China in Anchorage serve? What was what was gained from that? It didn't change reality on the ground. It only made things more antagonistic. And we already knew that we were in a fucking rivalry with China. So why do you do it? Why? Because it's performative. It affirms your sense as like, oh, this is an ideological competition. We're leaders of the free world. We're standing up for our values, right? Except you didn't change shit. It is performative. It is non-material. It is non-substantive. Right. Um, and then there's like another explanation, though, which is like I call it bad deterrence theory. Bob Jervis had this book called Images in or the Logic of Images in International Relations. He published in 1970. Classic book. He distinguishes between what he calls signals and indices. And this has to do with the issue of credible communication, credible commitment making. Indices are when you're communicating something that's based on some observed reality that is true and inalterable, like an attribute of your identity or a sunk cost, something that's costly for you to do, like you wouldn't do it otherwise, right? That's an index. And a signal, it's basically cheap talk. It's it's co a communication of a promise or a threat that like you can't the adversary can't know for sure how to judge it because it's not inherently costly. It doesn't reflect your identity attributes somehow. Um, and so a signal is often just cheap talk. Cheap talk is not credible. And so there's a way in which signaling with military assets, with toughness, with deliberate friction, with arms sales that don't change the balance of power, the correlation of forces, all that stuff, it's basically like not processing deterrence 
theory correctly. Like we have a sense of how you deter an adversary, how you make credible threats. And a lot of the military signaling that we do, coercive signaling, it's not trying to deter anything specifically. It's And it still is antagonistic. It still is friction, but it's not deterrent. And we saw this with, with Kim Jong-un in 2017 with the maximum pressure threats and fire and fury threats. It's this belief that you need to do stuff to like signal your willingness to go to war. But when you're doing this stuff, you're not doing it because you're willing to go to war. You're doing it to send a message or whatever the fuck. It's just that's like bad deterrence. Right. And so you get the risks of doing military signaling, but without the benefit of, you know, deterring or compelling the adversary. There's a performative way to think about this. There's a bad deterrence theory way to think about this. And then I would say also there's this ideological competition view that resides in Washington that I wish it was not this way, but I think it basically is, which is that everybody seems to think that there's this fight for the free world happening that means we have to take on China everywhere all the time. And that means being antagonistic toward China, what is the best way to do that without directly starting a war? Well, by being close to Taiwan. And I'm certainly on the like, you know, friends of Taiwan camp, but there's ways to do it that we know are antagonistic and there's ways to do it that turn down the volume on things. And so far, Kurt and Jake in the administration are, have been all too happy to like move close to Taiwan in ways that poke at China, which is just not not smart. And so Chris Clary's um, question here, it, it arises precisely because of that, right? He's not a China hand, and yet he sees the U.S. doing all this stuff that's like signaling closeness to Taiwan in an antagonistic way, when presumably you could do that without the antagonism. So anyways, I don't know if I've like cornered the market on the right answer to this, but it's definitely a, a good question because Taiwan is a flashpoint of war with China, you know? It's interesting to me, you uh, characterize these moves as antagonistic. You know, in some ways, I see this, a lot of this uh, Biden administration's policies toward Taiwan as continuation of the Trump administrations. But it seemed to me that the shift between Obama and Trump was more provocative in, in many ways than the continuation between Trump's policies and the Biden administrations. I mean, most of this is meetings, further engagement, you know, just sort of keeping lines of communication open uh, at a higher level. Um, and I'm not sure if that's really rattled Beijing or where the uh, signal sort of spikes, if you know what I mean. Well, so it's not a, if, if you're comparing the shift from Obama to Trump, it's of course going to be like way more discontinuous or whatever than the shift from Trump to Biden. But Trump locked in a literally an overt rivalry threshold. So by continuing that, you're continuing a new, bad, deleterious tradition. That's a problem. Like the idea that you would say like, oh, nothing to see here when it antagonizes China is not, I mean, to me, that's like not reading reality properly. It's one thing to say like, well, does China fear this? No, they don't. And I think that's probably true. But like, what do you get out of, like, I'm, I'm all for like, having more diplomatic meetings with Taiwan or whatever, but that's not the point of contestation. The point of contestation is arm twisting Japan to make collective security statements about the defense of Taiwan. What is served by that? That is the puzzle. Like that's what Chris is 
is asking basically like that was what prompted this so there is like a collection of policies and some of it is more controversial than others but specifically like i was just told two days ago that goj government of japan is upset about being asked to have made statements about taiwan and they sort of went along anyways and the only reason that we even like are seeing this stuff in the press is because they're not happy about it you know and so what is the benefit what is the benefit? That's why it's a puzzle. So for the second question, this is from This Is My Swamp. Upon examining your China policy, I've not actually grasped what you're wanting. Militarists think you're too soft and pandas think you're too hawky. Where do you really sit? Sorry, I don't fit into your binary world, Mr. This Is My Swamp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too grave for you. I am the Matrix. So uh, I've... I've sort of explained this in like way earlier episodes maybe i need to explain it again but in the sort of like progressive internationalist worldview that i like broadly subscribe to slash create with my own reality the threat of china is not primarily military in nature the defense policy moves that we make the aircraft carrier deployments, the justified Pentagon spending, the asymmetric arms competition that we're in, all that stuff is a skew of the problem. It doesn't help us at all. If anything, it increases the consequences of bad decisions, right? And so there's this, the risk that the downside risk keeps increasing as we go down this militarized path, right? And it doesn't actually ever help anything. It just costs more money and increases risks. In the sort of progressive view, I'm coming at this much at like a very different angle. China is a threat to democracy in the sense that their foreign policy produces structural violence kind of everywhere it goes. It encourages corruption. And we see this. This is like very well documented in its periphery, especially its continental periphery. Uh, somewhat in its maritime periphery. We're starting to see it in the Pacific Islands, right? And I don't know how much of this is like malign strategic intent versus it's incidental, but when great powers expand, this is what happens, right? And like I've got the Hawaii with U.S. comparison in my head of like how America expanded into Hawaii and then basically took it over um, because that's a very reasonable ideal type model of great power expansion that's how this thing works so you start with economic penetration economic penetration creates conditions on the ground that are highly uh, inegalitarian and anti-democratic basically and it weakens governance in that space it does harm to people in the form of structural violence and as a function of weakening governance you are actually able to strengthen your economic position in the territory, in the country. And that gives rise to political interests because you want to keep your influence and your economic interests secure. Any place where you have political interests, if you're expanding great power, they become, there's a high risk that they become security interests, right? At a certain point, you have to defend that. And so that's the logic of expansion, you know? And we see that play out in some parts of Chinese foreign policy. And even if China is not expansionist, just the fact that its own economic and trade policies lead to um, kleptocracy or encourage kleptocracy, right, uh, or aid authoritarianism in countries that diverts money from civil society in places like Kazakhstan 
into the coffers of the autocrat that then get laundered in the international financial system. That's the that's like the problem. That's the threat matrix, right? And so how do you address that? Well, you don't address that by getting obsessed about Chinese missiles. You know what I mean? Like about scaremongering about uh, invasion of Taiwan. That doesn't serve anything. What you have to serve is initiatives that are kind of orthogonal to China, but that box China in. So if you could get China to increase the wages of its workers, and if you could increase the tax burden of companies that do business in China, you would have less inequality and therefore more purchasing power, more voting power, a more substantial middle class, and it would alleviate the incentives that China has to push its capital uh, offshore, which is what creates the structural violence in the first place. And so when you have these sort of economically focused initiatives that are mindful of civil society, you can actually reduce some of the damage. You can prevent a case like Sri Lanka ending up debt trap diplomacy is like such an overplayed thing. But like when China takes over a port because of uh, bad debt in Sri Lanka, you can prevent that situation from even arising if you can preempt Sri Lanka's need for China's investment capital. But it requires a rebalancing of, of wages, et cetera. And there's a logic like that too with uh, Xinjiang, Xinjiang cotton and all that stuff with the Uyghurs. The problems that I see with China have to do with its uh, illiberalism, its authoritarianism, and the fact that it is oligarchic authoritarianism right? And it's fueled by ethnic nationalism. All of those things are huge problems. That's not what people talk about ever in Washington, except as like a rhetorical way to jab at China, not as part of like, that's the problem we're trying to solve. Everybody, you, you like state these rhetorical things about why China is bad, which points to things like structural violence or points to human rights violations. But then you pivot immediately to uh, China's going to invade Taiwan. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where the fuck do you get that from, right? Like, that doesn't add up. And so, like, I have an inverse view of a lot of Washington hawks, which is that, like, not totally inverse, I guess. But, like, the military thing is not the main problem. We're actually, like, in a substantial lead slash a position that we can manage via deterrence with, with China. And when you look at scholars on, like, the PLA, like Taylor Fravel, they interpret Chinese foreign and defense policy largely in a security dilemma lens, which means that militaristic policies on our part only make the situation worse. So I don't see that as the solution, but there is a set of problems that need to be addressed, and they are the kinds of problems that progressives think about most, which is inequality, oligarchy, kleptocracy. So that's where, that's where my head is at. And the last question is from Improper Lobster. What? Following the UK's defense review that they've just completed, they announced the deployment of the QE2 aircraft carrier to the South China Sea. What are your thoughts on that? And what do you think the Chinese response will be? Oh, so I don't know. I mean, I wrote a thing for foreign affairs recently where I said, you know, it's not a bad thing if the US can get uh, European countries involved in Asia more. I didn't have primarily in mind military deployments because Europe's, I say Europe, I know we're talking about the UK, but like just Europe in general, because the French have a play here too. Their capacity 
to project force is extremely low and their capacity to be, I don't know, war fighters is extremely low. And so they can be a part of a coalition, but is that what they're really aiming for? And like I just spent the last seven minutes talking about, the military challenge from China is not the primary front. It's not the primary thing that we should be concerned about. So to me, it reeks of militaristic sort of like phallic hubris, clash of civilizations even, to deploy your military in the name of the China threat, even though you're not actually posturing for war, but like you're trying to send a signal, right? To be concerned about China in that respect, but then to allow China to own your 5G, which I know is not the case with the UK, or to like have high levels of trade volume with China, to be dependent on China economically, or to be unable to speak out about Chinese human rights violations, this actually sounds a bit like Australia, right? That is a huge fucking problem. You're feckless. The idea that you chest pound and you're willing to threaten war, but at the same time, you feel too meek to actually speak out in defense of human rights, or you're unwilling to break or pull China out of your supply chains, right? That you're, you're not willing to sever economic ties with this country in the name of your economy because your economy is too important. That's a contradiction, and the militarism of your policy needs a second look, you know? So having said all that, I do think it's useful um, from a U.S. perspective to have other countries or democracies involved more in Asia. Even if it's military, I guess, I'm not super comfortable with that. I don't think it I don't think it does a lot of harm. I just don't I think it's orthogonal to like the solution or to the problem. Oh, that does us for ask me anything this week. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Um, what is the thing? Buymeacoffee.com/undiplomatic. Send us coffees if you want to rate us on iTunes. Don't judge us on the uh, outro. And um, yeah, catch you next time. Peace. <laughs>